Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on the hate crime hoax around the world. His life will never be the same. Empire actor Jesse Smollett is accused of using racism and homophobia to dupe the public for his own gain. There's too much of a reliance on celebrities to be the face. You know, how hard is it to get victims to come forward now? What it'll take to quell public anger. I'm sorry I did this. This is why I did this. An inside look at police operations, psychology, and just how politicizing hate can backfire. A year after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, a legal battle to arm teachers in a Pennsylvania school district. This is their new safety plan to prevent school shooting. Who's behind the legal battle and the plans to get educators to put the guns down. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is recent charges against Empire actor Jussie Smollett. The saga began January 29th when the openly gay black activist told police he was attacked by two men who put a noose around his neck and doused him with a chemical. It prompted politicians and celebrities to offer support. The actor even appeared on Good Morning America. He said, this MAGA country punches me right in the face. Soon after, Chicago police interviewed two brothers who said Smollett paid them to orchestrate the attack to boost his career. Here's police superintendent Eddie Johnson. Why would anyone, especially an African-American man, use the symbolism of a noose to make false accusations? Smollett has been charged with a felony for filing a false report. Empire execs have written him out of the show. So, what did the lie do to real victims and what can Jesse do to make amends? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Frank Farley. He's a psychologist at Temple University. We also have Kevin Bethel, a retired deputy police commissioner with the Philadelphia Police Department. We also have Krista Hayburn, a former police officer turned spokesperson for Women Organized Against Rape. And finally, we have Ernest Owens. He's a writer at large at Philadelphia Magazine. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. So this is a mess. Okay, so I want to give everybody five seconds to react to the revelation that Jesse Smollett is now accused of staging this attack. Devastated. Sad. Sad. Very sad. Everybody (laughs) agrees on this. So, Frank, I want to start with you. What kind of mindset must Jesse be in right now, having been caught in the act, so to speak? Well, of course, he's going to be enormously disappointed. He'll probably be really afraid and scared and uh, having a sort of whole self-revelation about his life because his life will never be the same. And he's probably wondering why he did it. You know, he's probably going to be analyzing himself. You know, and clearly, I think he had a problem of impulse control. He shouldn't have moved forward with this thing. He did, apparently. It's all revisionist history. He's going back over his why he did it, why he did it. Painful time. What's going to happen? Painful time for him. So, uh, Kevin, superintendent of police of Chicago, Eddie Johnson, was pissed. Uh, to use his words, explain what lies like this do to a police department. I think he described it very well. I mean, and you can see that pain in his face, you know, the impact it has on him, not just about the money. I, I know there's a lot of conversation about how many hours, mm-hmm. just the relationship you have with the community. 
I mean, he describes his relationship with the LGBT community and the pride and the parade and how that impacts that relationship. Yeah. And so I think that is where a lot of it really tugs at you because you're a city that's trying to revamp. They have a lot of issues. He laid that out, right? I got violence. I have homicides. I have shootings. And then an incident like this happens, and it just really tears away up the fabric and all of that repair you're trying to do. You know, how hard is it to get victims to come forward now? You know, how hard is it? For, you know, you're always dealing with those consequences of your relationship. And for him to take the police department and use it and use this in a way really, really magnifies, you know, that process for him. So I can understand his pain and his frustration. Now, Ernest, you've been tweeting about this from the very beginning. What does this do to people of color and the LGBTQ community when it comes to reporting these hate crimes after seeing this? Well, you know, we just had an incident not too long ago in Philadelphia uh, surrounding alleged hate crime. And it was actually a white male who was a neighborhood events planner who actually lied and said he witnessed a hate crime that he didn't see. Just coming off the heels of that locally and then seeing that take place nationally with Jesse Smollett is just a disappointment across the board. It just in a time where people are already trying to discredit victims that actually have lived experiences, this only adds fuel to the fire. I think we like to give benefit. Uh, you know, people to benefit the doubt, especially people from communities of color, LGBTQ individuals, especially, especially at a heated political climate where mm-hmm. hate crimes are on the rise nationally. Yes, yes. We have to acknowledge that. Right. And just seeing this take place and happen creates himself to be the poster child for some very um, extremists to use this, abuse this, and use this outlier, because yeah. it is an outlier, to try to discredit people. Yeah, yeah. And I want to jump to you, and we'll come back to that outlier issue and how people are going to use this as gasoline on a burning fire. And so, Krista, you filed reports, had retaliation against you. How did it make you feel to find out this was all a ruse? It made me sad. It made me sad for the people who last, you know, last year, the 7,100 actual people who experienced hate crimes more than what the year before it was, that their, their stories are going to mean nothing going forward because People are going to second-guess them. It's really a step back for, for victims of crimes that are their truth. And it's very true. And so let's dig a little deeper into this because we've had numerous hoaxes. I mean, Ernest mentioned one of them. Uh, we also had the blackface hoax with the mummers. Knee-jerk reactions led to false allegations of racism against the mummers, who are already controversial. We had Johnny Bobbitt. Y'all remember that? And the fake GoFundMe stunt. Um, We also had one a few years ago. A young boy alleged that he had his scrotum twisted so bad by cops. Turned out it wasn't true. Frank, how are people so easily able to prey on the public and get so much attention? Well, firstly, social media. Mm-hmm. We all live there, and it's now un- universal. And so everybody has a global platform, and it's totally easy to access it. You know, you build it, and they will come. And so mm-hmm. it's just become a beautiful outlet, or an ugly outlet in, in, in this case, of um, craziness. And we're going to see a lot more of it. The 21st century is going to be an online century. It's going to be a digital century. Yeah. Everybody can connect with everybody else. Marshall McLuhan said years ago, that ultimately will become a global village. Yeah. We're all so interconnected yeah. that if, if you've got a problem where you scream out, everybody knows about it. And it goes around the world in an instant. Now, it seems like people ran with this. Now, meanwhile, police are doing their job. What is it like on the inside? Because you've been, you've been there when all kinds of craziness was happening. I mean, it can be very frustrating, in particular, as Doc talks about you know, social media, where everybody's racing to... No one wants to do the fact-finding anymore. It's, it's just about let's make a quick judgment. Let's push it out. 
I mean, law enforcement has a responsibility to slow it down, which I'm proud of what they were able to do is really slow it down and really look at the facts and let the facts drive where you're going. I mean, coming out front where they're going to treat him as a victim at the, at the early stages. And, I mean, you heard him say 50 search warrants. I mean, the, the volume of work yeah, that was put into penis, to yeah. this process just is indicative of what is necessary to do on that backside. Now, obviously, it's a high-profile job. So let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, part of that is, you know, getting 13 detectives assigned to your case. I mean, I mean, we have to be realistic. I mean, but because of the high profile and because of that lens put on it, there was a high expectation that law enforcement be performing at a high level as right. well. And so there's a there's a stronger responsibility at that time as well of making sure they do everything right because you're going to have a very, a very strong defense. Um, and he still has the right to go before the courts and see, you know, see what actually really happened. And, and so, Ernest, was the immediate reaction from high profile politicians, from other very high profile people before the facts came out, did it sort of fuel the the need for for everybody to cover this and jump on this and make it even and sort of whip the public up even more? Part of the issue with some of the news was that there were a lot of police sources that were leaking things to reporters. Yeah, air, and, air quotes, yeah. And, and that was something that, you know, really kind of um, created a little bit of the confusion. But to your point, I think it became politicized the moment that mm-hmm. you had national presidential candidates from the Democratic Party, um, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, weighing in early and really jumping on this. And I think sometimes politicians do this for social clout. Um, they were announcing their, they're making their announcements so this was timely and they want to be relevant. And so people really quickly, um, you know, at least the left was really using this as an opportunity to really amplify their platforms and use him as the poster child to really pivot this against the hate that they were alleging against Trump supporters. Mm. And now it's going to the right, right where they're going to politicize this and make him really in many ways the Jason Blair, the Tawana Burley, the yeah. the, the people that, you know, the, the lacrosse, the Duke lacrosse accuser. They're going to now use this and say, well, this is what happens and really make it discredit other people. So I think this has become politicized based on the fact that you have elected officials who weighed in and now both sides are doing it. Trump just put out a tweet today talking about it. Yes. So it's it's now it's in a political sphere now. Yeah. And it was politicized by throwing MAGA yeah. in there. That made it political even more than right. racism and homophobia. And so, Krista, the Me Too movement has been criticized over I mean, over the months and months, I mean, could and it could very well suffer a similar blow. You know, uh, do you think this will give people pause and not just bra- black and brown folks, but everyone um, so that they'll at least slow it down instead of saying we stand with this person. We they say something more tempered, like we'll see what happens in the facts. I hope this is not true, et cetera, et cetera. Well, from a Me Too standpoint, what I would have to say as a form as a victim um, is that. We don't come forward if it didn't happen to us just because of the stigmatization, stigmatization that comes with yes. being a victim of sexual, of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. So if you don't, if, if, you know, that case in point for the Me Too movement, my hope is that they're not going to use what happened here as a hoax mm-hmm. because I've never, I've seen it happen yeah. with victims of sexual violence, right? It does happen. The Duke, yeah. However, the, yeah. It, right, it does happen, um, but... The majority of victims of sexual violence don't lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are so many facts. And I use that loosely. I mean, but there were red flags. There was a MAGA hat. There was a noose. There was chemical, a.k.a. bleach. And Jussie Smollett, I mean, you you heard President tweeted today. He said that Jussie Smollett insulted the tens of millions of people. 
they called it a dangerous, a dangerous thing. Can we talk about the danger here? When you throw MAGA in there, that's a, you put a target on a lot of people's backs. For starters, this didn't come out of the sky. There, this came from a place where there was already a reputation that people had affiliated with MAGA. So, you know, the same way that Jesse Smollett wasn't mm-hmm. quick to believe, people didn't believe that because of his reputation. He had a reputation of being an advocate in the LGBT community, black community. He affiliated with, the, with Black Lives Matter. He affiliated with a lot of causes. He was the face of a lot of HIV awareness campaigns. He had done a work to show himself to be an advocate, so that's why people believed him. He didn't have a record to the public's knowing. So I think that was easy why it was easy to believe him. So I think we have to look at the credibility of him as a person, as a public figure, that people have to ask, why would someone who appears to be woke would do something like this? And and Frank, jumping over here, why would somebody who appears to be woke, what kind of what kind <laughs> of mental, you know, <laughs> what kind of mental state do you have to be in to concoct something and then to go on national TV, try to keep it going? And then after you get caught, the cracks start coming. You never you never you wait until you get caught. I don't know. <laughs> You're supposed to. Huh? I mean, that's real. Right. That's real. Fame. Maybe fame. Right. Fame. 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 Narcissism. My sense is that the motives are more complex than are being alleged. I, I doubt that it's only money. Exactly. It's going to be more than that. Yeah. It's going to be a recipe with several ingredients that would probably include politics, yeah. uh, money, um, perhaps a f- feeling that he wants more fame or that it's slipping, perhaps. Well, Public recognition. Yeah, yeah, and there was some of that. Yeah, um, uh, Social justice issues mm-hmm. as well. And I think it's uh, really a recipe with several ingredients, and it's not just the money. Well, he also and said one that, other yeah. thing that occurred to me, too, is I think the nation is going through a lot of stress. I mean, the level of political uncertainty in America has never been this high mm-hmm. for in memory. And I think that the whole nation is, is in a sense, suffering a, an increase in stress, just what's going to happen next and so on and so forth. Who knows if that didn't have some effect on him, some emotional effect, you know, and then he, he proceeded with a crazy scheme yeah. and didn't inhibit himself. He, he villainized people who already had the reputation of traumatizing and doing other things or whatever. So it made it easier right. for people to believe it and made it and, and kind of can give you a sense of, well, they deserved it anyway. But I think there's also ego, too, because he also said when he made his first public appearance, which was not on Good Morning America, but at a concert shortly yeah, after. Yeah, and he referenced himself as the gay Tupac. And he said he fought back. So there was a sense of masculinity there. There's this, this toxic display of violence and this strength of positioning and power. Where I was taken aback, it was like, why would you reference yourself to be Tupac? Like, why would you come out publicly in the midst of all this violence, simply say, you know, I want you to know that I fought the blank back? Like this sense of this, 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 this need Against to these, exert yeah. this hyper masculinity right. in this type of way. I, I think there was ego there, and I think a lot of that comes from a place of being a victim of um, homophobia, of yeah. this type yeah. of ignorance. And I think he weaponized that. He definitely did. And so, Kevin, uh, the president mentioned that the accusation was dangerous. And it was. I mean, lying like this, should there be stiffer sentences? I mean, you know, what, what, what can we do to I remedy this to type careful, of thing? Though. I mean, I, I understand the, the, the goal to want to, even in this arrest case here, ultimately, Jesse's not going to do any time. I don't believe he's going Mm-mm. to do any time. Yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, is there a danger? Yeah. I mean, I think from a policing perspective, 
we're always these triggering events, right? We've always, you know, a police shooting, and, and, and next thing you know, we have marches or something like that. And so when you bring this toxic environment yeah. and you have this event where you bring all of this, and in his case, he brought all of it, right? He, there's nothing yeah. left on the it's table, like right? He he, you know, and and he so, so, so you think yeah. about that. Yeah, so you get this kind of swelling going on, and then all of a sudden you need a triggering event. And, and so that's where from policing perspective, was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, this could have been really bad, right? This yeah. could have been that event. And then, you know, and so I think it, it really is. But Trump, I mean, Mac, I mean, his stuff is danger. I, I think I don't put myself, I, I kind of leave myself out of those conversations because he's all over the place. Yeah, you know I mean, and he's doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, he's doing. Yeah, he whips it up and then he lays it down. Well, it's politicized. Politicians are going to use what right, they want right. to, to amplify whatever their position yeah. is, right. and so it, it gave him. Right. He got base. Yes. He ran with the same way that the liberals did. So yeah. I think it's that, and they used it, it to pass the anti-lynching mm-hmm. law because Jesse Smollett was specifically mentioned in a tweet by Kamala Harris right. when she got this law passed. And so, Chris, I do want to ask you, <laughs> do you think this incident will change how should change how we all respond as a public in response to victims? I come from two different points of view. I come from the cop view of seeing it always as waiting it out to see what comes of the whole situation mm-hmm. as a victim. I would hope that it opens up our eyes to see that this does happen, but it's not all the time. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this was a, you know, a celebrity, so it's going to get national news. Mm-hmm. It's not somebody you know, from Philadelphia like what happened here a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. that went national. So my hope is that um, we really just kind of step back and come from a place of empathy and compassion and think it through before we open up our mouths and step onto a public platform like social media. Yeah, and we got to talk about the city perspective because, I mean, if this type of thing had happened in Philadelphia with a high-profile person saying that they were beaten, noosed, and sprayed by some racists wearing MAGA hats, it would be... It would be an outrage in the city of Philadelphia. And I do think that people would try their best. The mayor, police, even all of us who live here, we would want to know who in the world would do such a thing. Absolutely. I mean, because I think what people forget is when you do this, it creates fear in the community. Yeah. The people believe that someone's out there doing this. You know I mean, so it's not just about that individual. It's about all of those in, in the community. Everybody in that community from all walks of life sitting there saying, oh, my goodness, that could happen to me now. Are you going to catch him? So some people want me to catch him because I don't want to be victimized by that person. So that whole community was impacted by his incident because all of them at the early stages think there's someone out there who is abusing and beating. And because he's gay, they're going to attack him. I mean, and so, you know, you know, that just creates a whole nother environment. One thing that worries me is that it imperils the public perception of truth or falsity in all of these claims. It really renders... A, a national debate about the validity of what we hear, you know, and these these claims of hate crimes, et cetera, and fake news. It plays right into yeah. the hands of that. And it's almost a license for homophobes and racists. And all of that worries me a lot going forward. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's contagious emotion. <laughs> it's it's a hot new field in psychology that mm. the, how emotions, et cetera, can become contagious. Mm. And in the era of social media, it can happen fast. And that, a follow-up question. I mean, on the previous show, Frank, you talked about the how, you know, politicians specifically around elections use emotion and strong talking points to whip up the electorate. That kind of gets them to the polls. Mm-hmm. Has the country uh, gotten more savvy? And, the, and folks like Jussie Smollett, 
for example, the other folks who were behind hoaxes, have they used that same approach to whip folks up uh, that causes these types of fake stories and gets people on their side? And Because, I mean, Jussie Smollett has an album that was scheduled to drop on March 2nd. If his plan had been successful, I mean, his sales probably would have been through the roof. They probably will be if it comes out. <laughs> yeah. I would assume. I think people want to stream it. Curiosity. And I'm not fan of his vocals, but I, I think it would have made me give it a more of a second listen. But I would like to see when well, you mentioned politicians is more impulse control. You know, mm. the old idea that think before you act mm-hmm. rather than act before you think. Yeah. You know, and it starts in childhood. To, you know, our prisons are full of people with impulse control problems. You but know, you know we got to talk about the code of celebrity, too. Yeah. I think the issue yeah. here is that, you know, what I think is that there's too much of a reliance on celebrities to be the face yeah. with of movements. And, and I think this is a media problem, is mm-hmm. that there are a lot of people doing the local work on yep. the ground. And in my coverage, I, I'm very, I love covering everyday people specifically. And I think too often on a national level, people feel like they have to have a celebrity pitch or an angle to address these issues. And, and celebrities are liabilities because they are high profile. Mm-hmm. Um, they have egos. And there's often a lot of commercial and corporate strings involved in it in ways that everyday people don't have. So I feel like in this situation, we should have been covering more hate crimes happening to people every day. If we did, then something like this would not cause that problem. Newsrooms have to now take a step back and say, oh, well, did we go too far? Well, if you were doing more work, this would not have been the case. And so I think too often we rely too much on celebrities to validate the experience of everyday people. And then when they show themselves to be flawed, as humans are, then it falls on everybody else. And that's not fair. Yeah. And I mean, and now we're going to have to pay the price of this um, celebrity love fest that we have because we have a number of movements across Mm -hmm. this country that are very much led by celebrities when this has been an issue for years. Years, At the same time, though, when a celebrity has something happen, you can get movement on a particular issue. Yes. And so there, there's a, a there's a way to there's a, a there's a win. It's a risk. And I want to shift gears a little bit because, you know, we move we move quickly. So the, the other issue I want to talk about is forgiveness. What do you think it's going to take for the public to forgive Jesse Smollett? His apology, his public apology saying, I'm sorry I did this. This is why I did this. And I'm truly sorry. And really mean it, like coming from a place of not the ego, but from a place of actual love and caring for the community and the people that he serves as an advocate. And it also needs to be accountability, I yes. do believe, too. Agreed. I've told people that I think there should be accountability and intervention. There mm-hmm. needs to be intervention for him in his career. I think the accountability point is that he needs to take a seat. He needs yeah. to take a. He needs to fall back a little bit from spotlight because clearly fame has played a role in some of this, regardless of whether it was for money or visibility. It's played a role in this, and maybe or more salary, more yeah, salary, all of that. Yeah, do you think he can forgive himself mentally? I mean, this. Some people have said, you know, do you think this is a incident that could put push somebody over the brink, Frank? Um, it's possible. Uh, forgiveness is a very powerful psychological process, and. We know from lots of research that when you forgive somebody, it can really lift your – get rid of your anxiety and lift your depression, etc. And so to the extent that the nation or maybe Chicago or maybe certain groups forgive him, that will be very positive. Um, the question would be, is that enough for him? Mm. You know, And I don't know that because my feeling is that you know, I could be wrong, and it's all speculation, of course. There's there's something deeper going on here. Yeah, I agree. With yeah. him. 
That's why I said it needs to be an intervention, yeah. too. And I think there's a lot of credit has to be done to the superintendent because, I mean, when mm-hmm. he was given a chance, clearly he was angry, clearly he was frustrated. But the first thing he said was an apology. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and so I think that stood up as a, a very strong, you know, a statement for him to sit there who has the, the gauntlet, right? He can lay the boom and say, this is, I want all of these things. And clearly he wants them to be held accountable. But his first thing was that he needs to come before and, and ask for forgiveness uh, and then let us take his course. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's going to be, I mean, that's his process now. I mean, it'll be for those in the community now who are going to accept him and he may be able to come back from that. I don't That's, think so. He's going to need a lot of support. Well, I mean, listen, we see, we see people come out. Well, reality TV. Is, first of all, he, <laughs> hey, listen, he's a young, he's a young, he's one of the few young black gay um, entertainers to have the kind of platform he's had. As we know, there's issues with diversity across the board in the entertainment industry. So for people, you know, specifically in the LGBTQ community, especially of color, you know, he was one of the few actors I saw in my generation that had this kind of success very early. And to and, and and there's not that many, so they will use him as an example to keep to, to keep us back. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if they're going to be open arms because this is a very I mean, how many black gay out actors do you know right now that have the career that he's had so fast at his age? Uh, the, uh, every time I see his photo, <laughs> think, y'all. Every yeah. time I see his photo, yeah. I get a little shot. upset. So it's sad. Black History Month, right. so because <laughs> this. Is Flashpoint. I had to throw that out there because it's just, ah, ah. So because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. Lies, hoaxes, whatever word you want to use, we were all duped. Give advice to those in all communities who feel burned by this. How do we soothe the sting of this lie and keep our minds open for the cases where there are real injuries? Real simple. You know, keep doing the work. Focus local on the grassroots level. Don't look up to the celebrities to validate whatever causes that you have. Look inward. Focus on local issues. Focus on yourself and having your own backyard. And really recognize that not one person can uplift and downpour an entire movement. It takes many people to build it. It takes many people to demolish it. So just just reckon, just keep the peace and, and just stay positive. I couldn't have said that better. You can't allow this one incident right. to stop everything. The world just doesn't stop because of what this gentleman did to this. To us. To everybody. Us, yes. Yeah, and so I'm going to echo that. I mean, it's local. This yeah. is all local. Mm-hmm. And if, if these agencies, if, if the folks, our LGBT community, our victim community, all of these folks stay stay focused. Yes, it, it, hits, it gives you a little ding. Sure. But the, but the work continues. And I know Commissioner Ross and the police department are going to continue their efforts in the community, servicing victims and, and doing the work. Wonderful. Final word. We always make mistakes when we overgeneralize from one case to many cases. And... We lose our perspective so easily. And so it's very important in America today, in a, in a society that's sort of rampant with uncertainty of one sort or another, to keep our balance and to keep perspective. So with that, I want to say thank you to Frank Farley. Thank you to Kevin Bethel. Thank you to Krista Hayburn. And thank you to Ernest Owens for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, a year after the tragic Parkland shooting, a legal battle over arming teachers in a Pennsylvania school district. The teachers union does not want to carry the guns. How the policy passed muster and what's being done to block it. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. 
is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under the collar is school shootings. The country just marked the one-year anniversary of the tragic shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, where a former student killed 17 people and injured 17 more. Since that day, school districts across the nation have proposed measures to ensure such a tragedy will never happen again. And one such proposal is arming teachers. We found that in the Tamaqua Area School District in Schuylkill County, about 80 miles outside of Philadelphia. The district passed a measure that would allow teachers who are willing to be armed, but it's meeting major opposition. With us in the studio to tell us about what's happening is Shira Goodman, Executive Director of Ceasefire Pennsylvania. Shira, welcome to Flashpoint. Please explain the issue with this new policy. So the Tamaqua Area School Board enacted a new policy to allow teachers to be armed during the school day in their classrooms. They want to have a few teachers in each school that rotate. It would be anonymous. And they think this is their, this is their new safety plan to prevent a school shooting. They want actually armed teachers. They're not talking about security guards or school resource officers. They're talking about the math teacher carrying a gun, the kindergarten teacher carrying a gun if they volunteer and go through certain training. The problem is that the Pennsylvania school code is very clear on how you get armed personnel in school. Mm. And we have a school resource officer. We have school police officers. There's a procedure, a legal procedure you have to follow. The courts are involved. There's minimum training. This policy doesn't comply with that. This is just they changed the words and they decided that they want teachers to have guns. So there's litigation by the union and also by a group of concerned families. So people, what was the reaction when the school district rolled this out? Well, first of all, a lot of people didn't know about it till it hit the papers. The school was very quiet about it. Um, it's not clear whether or not they violated sunshine laws or not, but they weren't putting minutes up on their website in a timely fashion. They didn't read the policy. They would waive the reading of the policy at these meetings. So people kind of didn't know until they adopted it. And then they had a very big, um, meeting after the fact in November, they actually gave a group of parents a few hours to make a presentation. These moms came with data about other school shootings, about school safety. They had researched what schools in the area do They had researched other safety products like cameras and communication systems. Um, It was amazing, but the school wouldn't back down. They said, we like this idea. They had a group of um, firearm trainers from Ohio who really had this agenda of arming teachers with them uh, to talk about it. And um, they have kind of doubled down. They did, however, after the parents filed a lawsuit, they decided to suspend the policy Mm. during the litigation. Now, this lawsuit was filed January 4th. Teachers got together, uh, parents got together, and they said no. The teachers union actually filed their lawsuit earlier in November. Mm-hmm. So that, that suit's going moving a little faster. It's on the same basis, but again, the teachers have a different standing. They're employees in the building. Parents, and they don't want to carry the guns. The teachers union does not want to carry the guns. The parents felt like they, they wanted to file suit on behalf of their kids and themselves, people who are often in the buildings, to say this is a violation. So ultimately, a judge may decide to consolidate the two cases and hear them together because they're very similar claims. The parents felt, and we agreed, that it was important that they have their voice heard in the courts as well. And so talk about the issue that this presents, teachers armed. I think everybody cares about keeping our kids safe. I don't doubt that this comes from a place of wanting our kids to be safe and our teachers to be safe. But I think it's misguided. The data shows that um, arming teachers doesn't really um, solve anything, that it creates the opportunity for maybe a kid to find a gun, accidents to happen. We've seen teachers leave guns in bathrooms and other places and kids find them. That happened at a preschool 
near Harrisburg, a private preschool, and these little kids were finding the gun until somebody told a grown-up. Um, you know, luckily none of them touched it. But it doesn't, you know, these ki- these teachers have a lot of other burdens on them. The idea that they're the ones who are going to keep kids safe. They're the ones who are going to have to maybe decide to leave a classroom of kids to go confront an active shooter. It doesn't make good sense. All of the data shows that active shooters are stopped by suicide when the police come or an unarmed civilian intervenes. They stop to um, change their magazine and somebody hits them or tackles them. So the idea that we're not investing instead in changing the way we get people entering the schools in guidance counselors and nurses who can deal with troubled kids who may present a problem. Those are the things we should be investing in. Those are things we know actually prevent violence, prevent violent instances. Instead, we're, this school district has jumped to the last moment and kind of said, and I think it's, it's driven by some of the people on the security committee who are gun owners who feel that they would be the hero. It's driven by this kind of Wild West mentality that doesn't really fit in with what we know happens um, when guns are involved. Yeah, and I just can't even imagine. I mean, I was raised in a family of educators, and I can't imagine my grandmother, who was, you know, a school teacher for her entire life, having to then arm herself um, to, to, you know, to, to, to protect the kids. I mean, teachers want to protect children, but I don't know if they want to carry guns. Right. I mean, the, so a group of when this was being debated in the state legislature last session, a group of Sandy Hook teachers wrote a letter and said, we're surviving. We survived the Sandy Hook shooting. And we would not have wanted a gun. It would not have saved our students' lives that day. It would not have saved our colleagues' lives. What we were doing was hiding with our kids, keeping them safe, trying to keep them calm and quiet during this horrific, horrific thing. This is an offensive policy. So when you talk to people who've been through this, when you talk to teachers, um, the teachers' union is suing. uh, The parents don't really want it. It seems there's a miscommunication. And we need to find a way to bridge that gap and really have conversations about what will make us safe how do we deal with this problem? We can still, you know, respect the rights of gun owners, but that doesn't mean we want guns everywhere. It doesn't mean they make us safer. And could this spread? I mean, there's other places where gun incidents have happened. You know, th- does that mean we put guns everywhere you go? That's what the NRA and the gun lobby would have us do, that the safest person is a good guy with a gun. We know that's not really true. I mean, the Las Vegas shooter was a good guy with a gun until he broke that hotel window and stuck a rifle outside. That was the first yeah. The first law yeah. he broke. So we know that kids get guns at home. That's where they find them. We know that people's lives change. There's times when people who were responsible gun owners may be in crisis. Maybe something's going on and they're not safe with the gun for themselves. I don't want to live in a place where everybody's carrying guns and we have armed guards and metal detectors everywhere. I, I don't. So I think we need to find a way to come together and talk about what makes us safe. How do we be safe? And I don't think the answer is putting guns everywhere. And what's the legislature doing about this? Senator White is reintroducing his bill to allow school districts to do exactly what Tamaqua did. There's going to be a bill, I think, from Steve Sanisano that says school districts can't do it. The courts are going to rule on this. We're going to be fighting about it in Harrisburg and in the courts in Tamaqua. And I guess we'll see what happens from there. And where's Tamaqua, by the way? It's out in Schoolkill County. If you go way out on 309, kind of on your way to the Poconos, that's where it is. Yeah, and so tie that back to people in Philly. Why should they care about this? Well, they should care about it because, although I don't see the Philadelphia School District doing this anytime soon, it is an issue of what can communities do? What power do they have? That's going to be something that Philadelphia is always fighting with that. And a lot of people in Philadelphia may be sending their kids to charter schools or to schools elsewhere in places that are considering this. Yeah. And um, they should be thinking about what are our schools doing in Philadelphia to keep our kids safe. And they have metal detectors. 
and there aren't guns there. And I don't think the kids would want guns. I think the kids would say, we feel a lot safer without them. I want to have a good relationship with my teacher. I want to learn. I want to feel safe where I am. And they, I think they, for the most part, do. And I think that the people in Philadelphia are concerned about the violence in our neighborhoods, yeah. the, the proliferation of illegal mm-hmm. guns. Where are these guns coming from? We need to know that. How can we track them? How can we stop it? You know, how can we keep our kids safe? And there's a lot going on. I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court, we mentioned that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be dealing with the issue of the Second Amendment. I hadn't done this in over a decade. So we have a lot of gun talks that, that need to happen. Yeah. I mean, look, when I went to law school in the 90s, I'm dating myself, but we didn't talk about the Second Amendment at all. All of a sudden, 2008, 2010, the Supreme Court comes down and says there's an individual right in the Second Amendment. And so now we've been litigating and legislating. What does that mean? You know, Justice Scalia at that time said it's not an absolute right, like our other constitutional rights subject to regulation. Um, now we're going to find out what this new court thinks and uh, they could change some things. Yeah. When we think about what's happening with guns, so many mass killings that I feel like there's been every time you turn around, there's another one. There's another one at schools, movie theaters, anywhere you look, there's these mass shootings. People want to put more guns out there. I think the answer is, you know, what do all those things have in common? Somebody who shouldn't have a gun got one. It's too easy to get a gun in this country. We have so many loopholes. We're allowing, you know, weapons of war, these assault weapons with these high capacity magazines to be sold to civilians. Um, We really need to have a conversation, I think, about who should have a gun, what kind of gun should be available, how should we regulate it, what do we do when somebody's in crisis? Can we have a procedure for temporarily barring somebody from having a gun? Because we have a huge suicide problem, too. So we're not just protecting people from other people, we're protecting people from themselves. We're keeping them safe when they're in danger or in crisis or at risk. And so we need to talk about that. But sometimes we get so polarized and talking about, oh, you want to take my guns away? Oh, you know, we shouldn't have any guns. There's not that many people who really think we should get rid of all those guns and that many people who think people are coming for my guns. But that people kind of get in their corners and we can't have a real conversation. Because people have the right to get a background check. Uh, get a legal weapon, register it, get insurance, do all the things and be responsible gun owners. But we're also talking about, you know, other issues where we're arming teachers, putting guns in places where maybe guns shouldn't be. And there's argument that, you know, right to bear arms is not absolute. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, think about our First Amendment, right? You can't come on here and start spewing lies about the mayor or somebody that you know. I mean, there's limits on what you can say. We can't start a new religion that brings back child sacrifice because we think it's a good idea. That's not going to be protected by the First Amendment. Interestingly, in Pennsylvania, you know, you can go buy a gun. You can go to a gun store, do your background check. There's no license required. There's no waiting period. There is no registration of guns in in Pennsylvania. If you want to get a concealed carry license, you get that. But that's not the same as registering a gun. There are things we could do that maybe would keep us safer. What if we had mandatory training? You know, before getting a gun or like getting a license. Like you have mandatory uh, driver's license. Right. <laughs> you got to get, you you gotta take a test. You can't right. just, yeah. So we could be talking about just treating guns differently. And the truth is, it's not rocket science. We made driving safer. We made drivers safer. We made cars safer. We made our highways safer. When people were getting sick from eating romaine lettuce in the fall, you couldn't get a Caesar salad. Like, we can take care of this stuff. We're choosing not to. Tell people where they can find uh, Ceasefire Pennsylvania, follow the work if they're interested in the issues you guys focus on. We're on the web, ceasefirepa.org. We're on Facebook at ceasefirepa. Same on Twitter at ceasefirepa and Instagram. And we're in Philadelphia. You can call us at 215-923-3151. Wonderful. We'll be paying attention to this case. Things are going to be taken along. 
Yeah, the union case is moving a little faster, but so I suspect we might see something in that case in a few weeks. Um, the parent case, it depends if the judge orders them consolidated or what's going to happen, but we'll see something and we'll certainly see the legislature start talking about this as well. Wonderful. So Shira Goodman, Executive Director of Ceasefire Pennsylvania, thank you so much for appearing on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thanks for covering it. Next up, they're helping black students pay for college. We have raised over $450 billion. Your big upcoming fundraiser and how it'll help historical institutions in our region. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames on air Saturday evenings at 930 and Sunday mornings at 830. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. There's no doubt that a college degree is a vital tool for survival in the modern economy, but data from the U.S. Department of Education indicates that African-American students take on a greater financial risk than other groups in going to college. But one organization, the United Negro College Fund, known as UNCF, is helping black students attend and graduate college. Here to tell us about their ongoing effort to support HBCUs as well as homegrown Cheney and Lincoln University and much more is Greg Lyles, Area Development Director. He joins Lincoln and Cheney scholars Alexis Smith and Davins Bataille on the phone. Thanks so much, everybody, for being here. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. So, Greg, I want to start with you. Please lay out the major problem that UNCF uh, seeks to solve. We try to make sure that students have a successful matriculation at colleges and universities, not just at our 37 member institutions, but any college and university across the continental United States, all universities, because that's the way individuals design their scholarship programs. And last year, just in school years 17-18, just in the city of Philadelphia, UNCF awarded $3.3 million to students going to school. Yeah. And I know, you know, as somebody with three degrees, (laughs) you know, school is expensive. Yes, it is. And, 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 you know, when people are crippled by these student loans, so this these scholarships are vital. And so you have the real-world impact. I have them right in front of me, Alexis and Davins. Uh, so, so, Alexis, you are a student at Lincoln University. Yes, I am. About to get out of here. Yes. Like, how did it fill the gap? And what, I mean, what difference did it make to you? Oh, it made a huge difference because I was working two jobs just to make sure that I could be able to afford to keep going to school and then it was a time and place where I was just like I might not be able to graduate and UNCF helped me because now I'm able to graduate come May. Yeah, congratulations on Thank that. You. Yeah, and we're, you you already know what you're going to do. <laughs> yes, I do. Tell everybody. I'm going to be a probation officer. There you go. Right and we have so many reforms right now. So Davins, tell me a little bit about you. I'm senior at Cheney uh, for Philadelphia. Um, the scholarship uh, really had helped me because at the time, my parents, they really couldn't help me as far as financially. Like when I got to college, I was basically paying out of pocket. So I was working on campus. I was working off campus. Like getting a scholarship, it really lifted a lot of weight off my shoulders. And I could really focus on like my academics versus just focusing on how I'm paying to come back to school. Yeah. And is this story typical? Greg? It is. 
a lot of the students are going to school. They're working two jobs, mm. um, trying to make it. Um, some of them are first generation, and they need to leg up. And as they matriculate through these colleges and universities, we find that a lot of students, they need that extra dollar. They may need 2000 3000 some $5,000 just to make it through. And if you take away some of those scholarships and you look in the commu- in African-American community, the graduation rate is usually about 30 or 40%. So with that UNCF scholarship, it helps them to advance to get the degree that they're seeking um, to go on to bigger better and higher. Is the money the main reason why people tend, I know, I mean, I went to Boston University undergrad and we saw a lot of our, it was very few of us, number one, and number two, a lot of us left because, you know, when you work in two and three jobs, it's hard to study for chemistry. Right. Because you won't be, you won't be be there if, you know, and then you can't, you know, without the job and then you missing, you know, you can't study. Right. And that becomes a challenge. Yeah. And so we're there to fill that gap. And thanks to um, um, generous individuals across the country, we're able to fill that gap. But then we still have our challenges. Um, for every 10 students that applies for a UNCF scholarship, nine are denied because we just don't have the, the dollars to um, assist those individuals. That's why it's important that um, um, individuals around the country here locally um, continue to support UNCF. Um, we have an event coming up. Our UNCF Mayor's Mask Ball, mm-hmm. and our goal was to raise over six hundred thousand dollars to support individuals like Alexis and David. And so, David, what are you studying, and and what is your goal after graduation? I'm really still trying to figure out what I want to do, but I, um, I'm really leaning towards uh, finding a career in hospitality. And so, I mean, you're at Lincoln. Yes. You know, I, I know a, quite a few Lincoln Lions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And um, who have gone on to do all sorts of things. And so um, when you hear about the this, this support kind of coming into your school, how does that make you feel, Alexis? It makes me happy because being as though I'm about to leave, I know that there's people that I'm close to in school having the same issues that I was coming across when I was in school. So being as though they're trying to help the students that are already there, it really just makes me happy. Yeah. And so do you both feel equipped? I mean, about, yeah, the countdown is on. <laughs> Are y'all ready? I'm ready. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, you ready, Dave? You, you were quiet over there. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. All right. And so, and that's what this is all about, Greg. Yes, it is. It's all about helping those students who did well in high school, made the grades, ready to move on, and now we can't let a roadblock like dollars stop them from um, going on to bigger, better, and higher. Um, the mission of UNCF, as we go into our 75th year wow. of UNCF, we're celebrating our 75th anniversary. And over those years, we have raised over $450 billion for students. With a B, y'all, with a B. Yes, with a big B. <laughs> so tell people, where can people get tickets to the um, the mayor's mass ball? Yeah, you can go to our website, um, www.uncf.org. Scroll down to the Philly office and you can get information about tickets sponsorships the tickets are $250 per tickets sponsorship goes from $4,000 to $50,000 we're going to get to that goal that uh, we're so close to Uh, we need the support of everybody and all companies and corporations Uh, we have really good leadership who's who's leading our charge for this year's mayor's mass ball as we honor Comcast 
Robert Bogle of the Philadelphia Tribune and Wells Fargo. Go to uncf.org, check out the Philly, scroll down, click on the Philly page, and make sure you get tickets. It's in March, March 23rd. March 23rd, Saturday, March 23rd at the Pennsylvania Convention Center. And it's going to be nice. People always see the photos, but pay for your tickets, y'all, because this goes to a very good cause, and it keeps people like Alexis and Davins in school and lightens that financial burden. So I want to say thank you to Greg Laos. Thank you to Alexis Smith, and thank you to Davins Bataille for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Greg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Just search Flashpoint KW. And if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As longtime Philly radio host, the late Bernard Metzer once said, when you forgive, you in no way change the past, but you sure do change the future. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.